James chapter 1, verses 13 through 16 is where we're going to pick up. James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Now, we broke this down in great detail in our last study last week, but I want to just recap it real quick. When you go through trials, a part of the trial is going to be temptations to respond the wrong way in the trial. Don't think that even though God's the one who is orchestrating this and allowing Satan to do certain things in your life, don't think for a second that it's God who's tempting you. He's not. He's using the enemy and the world and your flesh that's already there because we saw the, the desire comes from within you. He's using all those things to accomplish his purposes. And as we ended up with last time and said over and over, his desire is that you rely on him, that you turn to him, that you lean on him. That's a big purpose. And at the same time, though, we all stumble. We, none of us respond perfectly to the temptations. None of us respond perfectly to the trials. And we all stumble in sin sometimes as believers. And to say that you don't is a lie. The Bible actually says if you say that you don't have sin as a believer, the truth's not in you. Yet, the issue for real salvationers or not is lasting faith. And that's where we ended up last time we were together. But I want to kind of recap that for us by having us turn to 1 John chapter 2 and look at verses 15 through verse 28. 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 through 28. John sums it all up here. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the, of the eyes and the pride of life, is excuse me, not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, children. Now that, by the way, that's going to be a very important word tonight. Keep that in mind. Children. It is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Now no one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Now I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Now, 
It then goes on, he says in verse 29, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. We're going to dive into that in just a little bit. But let me just remind you, James has been laying out. He's talking to Christians that are a part of the dispersion, especially Jews who are part of the dispersion. And why was the dispersion happening? Because of persecution. And they're going through trials, the testing of their faith. And as we looked at last week, you could parallel James chapter 1 with the parable of the soils. And how there are those who left, walked away from God because of trials and the suffering that they went through. Others walked away or were lured away by wealth and the deceitfulness of wealth and the cares of this world. But those who have real faith actually persevere. They have steadfast, their steadfastness. They hang on, even though the world and everything's trying to pull them away from faith in Jesus. Those are the ones who are the good soil. But as he deals with temptation, we as, a, as Christians have to understand the depth of what the scripture says on this area, in this area, so that we can have victory when the enemy Christ comes and tries to lie to us about our standing in Christ. And I don't know if you noticed that or not, but here first, in 1 John, John keeps pointing out the difference between those who are really of faith and those aren't. And he keeps talking about the anointing, the sealing of the Spirit. You, have, you will abide in Him. And whoever has this practices righteousness. Now, before we go any further into this deep topic we're going to get into tonight, we have to remember, and it'll be helpful to us, to remember who James's main audience was. His main audience, was it believers or unbelievers? Believers. His main audience was believers. Go back in chapter 2, 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, look at verses 12 through 14. Now you say, Jim, we're studying James, so you're going to use your example from chapter 2 of John. Well, let me explain. We're going to be using a lot of what John had to say to kind of confirm what James is saying. And actually, if you understand that God wrote the whole of Scripture, whatever John says and James says, who actually said it? Jesus, exactly. God, God, that, that's it. That's why the book of James, by the way, and we'll get to that when we get to chapter 2, the book of James almost didn't even make it into our Bible. Back when the men were deciding the canon of Scripture, the fact that James would go on, and he's going to do that when we get to chapter 2, he said, that, he goes, you say you have faith? Let me see it by your works. In other words, Paul, who had said, you're not saved by works, but by faith, they thought James was disagreeing with Paul. But as you're going to see when we get to chapter 2, he actually is saying the exact same thing that Paul said, but in a different way. What John is saying here, look at chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. He says, I'm writing to you, little who? Children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. John has just said all of this right before the section I just read to you about the fact that we're in the last hour. This is the last time period before the tribulation period and the second coming of Jesus Christ. We're in the end of the church age right now. And there are many antichrists that have come and there's one that is still yet to come. But he's saying this. There's going to be those who are among us, but they're really not of us, because when push comes to shove, either through suffering or through the cares of this world, they're going to go away. But those who stay, those who don't go anywhere, those whose faith is real and proved by their steadfastness, those are the ones who have an anointing and they have knowledge. 
But he's writing to children, fathers, young men. In other words, he's writing to people at different levels of their walk in their relationship with the Lord. As I preach to however many people are here in this room and however many people are watching online or, or listening to the recordings later on, I don't know where every, each of you are in your maturity and your walk with the Lord. Some of you have walked with the Lord for many years and you know Him intimately. Others of you are new in the faith. Others of you are in that young men phase. Some of you might have been saved for a long time, but you've never really grown until later in your life. But here's what I want you to hear God wants you to understand the depth of where we're going tonight when it comes to temptation and practicing righteousness versus practicing sin. He needs you to understand the truth of the scripture so that you will be able to grow up when the enemy comes and tries to deceive you with lies. And so I don't know if you're a father. I don't know if you're a young man. I don't know if you're a child. But wherever you are, I pray that you would listen to what God's going to talk to us about tonight because we're going to hit some very deep topics and you need to know the truth. Now, the issue that we're looking at, though, right now, when it comes to dealing with temptation from James chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, when he says at the end of that, don't be deceived, my dear brothers. The issue is not the stumble or two that we have, but the practice of sin Versus the practice of righteousness. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Anybody here that doesn't sin? No, we all still sin. Thank God that's not the determining factor whether or not I'm saved. But there's a difference between stumbling in sin and practicing sin. There's a big difference. Again, at the end of the section we just read, 1 John chapter 2, verse 29, it says this, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Go back with me to 1 John chapter 1. Look at verses 5 through chapter 2, verse 6. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar and his words not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Did you hear that? All throughout that he's saying, look, if you know that he's holy, if you know that he's righteous... You, if you abide in him, you will be practicing righteousness. 
Will you do it perfectly? No, because it's a daily struggle. It's a daily battle where the enemy comes and he's got someone in the huddle. He's got our flesh already there as well. That's why Paul said, when I want to do good in my inner being, I, I have sin right there in my body, waging war against my spirit and my soul. Yet we have a victory if we learn how to walk in the spirit. And so when you sin, and we all sin, if you think it's okay, there's a problem. If you're not grieved by when you sin, I question whether the spirit's in you. If you can rationalize it and say, well, it's all right. God just, I'm only human and that's just the way. No, you can't go there. For those of us who are in Christ, we can't go there. We have to understand that that's what the Bible clearly says. Anyone who knows him and abides in him will walk as he walked. Go to 1 John chapter 3. Look at verses 1 through 10. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Now, the reason why the world doesn't know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him, anybody here show hands, thus hopes in him? Oh, we'll keep reading then. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We should be striving Toward holiness, keep reading, and everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now we're diving into this and spending a lot of time tonight in 1 John for this reason. We've just gone to the section of James 1 where it talks about being tempted. And don't be deceived. When you're tempted, it comes from your own evil desires that's within you. And you're lured and enticed. And don't blame God like we looked at last week saying it's not my fault. God allows whether or not I can be tempted and he could have kept me from this and all that. No, don't go down that road. But I think Christians really need to understand the depth of what's going on here in this battle. And you need to know the position that you have in Christ. Yet at the same time, you also need to know the power that's available to you if you are in Christ. And you also need to know how serious God still takes sin. Because there are a lot of Christians nowadays who just kind of think that, well, we're forgiven. Doesn't really matter what I do. The Bible says that that's not the way Christians should be thinking. There also were back at the time of the early church, and there are those today, the Gnostics who would teach, well, the Bible says that our spirits are made new and our bodies are still under the curse. So whatever I do in my body doesn't really matter because it's just going back to the ground. It's my spirit that's the real thing, and I can do whatever I want in my body. And there were those who taught that. But at the same time, 
If anybody says, oh, if you watch out, if you sin, you may lose your salvation. No, the Bible doesn't teach that either. For those of us who are in Christ, we've been sealed. We've been anointed. We won't be happy to go on sinning. So there's this balance of knowing the truth of who we are in Christ, knowing what's available to us, yet at the same time, striving with his help and by his grace to not make sin a practice in your life. You understand the difference? If you think, by the way, I used to think that I would get to some point in my walk with the Lord that as closer I got to Jesus, the less sin would be a temptation for me. Guess what? I'm finding the opposite. And it hit me one day as I was reading in the Gospels how Jesus, right before the cross, was tempted not to go to the cross. And it hit me. If Jesus, who is God, was tempted in his flesh not to go to the cross. By the way, do you think he was pretty much as close as he's ever going to get to the Father at that moment with all the prayer that he had spent? He had just had the Mount of Transfiguration. He's been praying in the garden. As close as he was to the Father, Jesus was still tempted. And God said, Jim, you will be tempted every single day till you die. But you can learn to get closer to me and have victory through the temptation. We must never, though, take sin lightly. You know why we shouldn't take sin lightly? Because God doesn't. You want proof that God doesn't take sin lightly? God put his own son to death because of our sin. That's how serious sin is. Years ago when the Passion of the Christ movie came out and all churches all went to go watch the movie. There's two main things that I remember from that night sitting in the movie theater watching the movie. The first one was I had a hard time hearing the movie because my wife was blubbering all the way through it (laughs) as she cried and cried and cried. But the second thing was this, as I watched even a, a, a bad portrayal, and I don't mean the movie was bad or the acting was bad. What I mean by that is this, you could still recognize the actor after he had been beaten. And the Bible says that he was beaten beyond human recognition. As bad as it was that he went, what he went through on the cross as it was portrayed in that movie, the Bible tells us it was worse than that. And I sat there as the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart, and I still struggle with sin, and there are certain sins that are more enticing to me than others, and I like them for a period. Remember, sin is pleasurable, but its pleasures are fleeting. The Spirit of God spoke to me, and I said, Lord, you're right. If you went through all this to take away my sin, why do I want to hold on to it? Why do I want to hold on to it? And God is also in this. We're going to go down a road here that's going to make some of you uncomfortable, but I'm just going to share the Bible with you. God has also shown that sometimes, and he chooses when he gets to do this, premeditated sin and unconfessed sin will cause God to shorten the time on earth for some believers. They're not going to lose their salvation, but they will lose their reward. I'm going to say that to you again, and I'm going to show it to you from Scripture. God has shown that sometimes premeditated sin or unconfessed sin will cause God to shorten the time on earth for a believer. They won't lose their salvation. But they will lose reward. Go to 1 John chapter 5. Look at verses 13 through 21. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, 
John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. Now, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there, are, there is sin that leads to death. I don't say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. And then what does he go on and say there? We know that everyone who has been born of God doesn't keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God he been protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now say, wait a minute, Jim. How could he say that there are certain Christians who will sin to the point that they'll die physically, yet the one who's been born of God doesn't go on sinning and the evil one doesn't touch him? Well, I'll explain that just a little bit, but the short version is simply this. When it says the evil one doesn't touch him, it means he can't take his salvation. It just means they can't, he can't take their salvation. But the Bible shows us over and over that God takes sin seriously and in his way and his purposes and his time, he chooses if someone's time on the earth is done. Let's just put it this way. He could choose to say, you're doing more damage for me than good down here on the earth. I'm just going to take you home early. You don't lose your salvation, but you do lose your reward. You remember what happened when the nation of Israel was brought by God out of the land of Egypt and into the promised land? He said, the first city I want you to go into is Jericho, and I want you to wipe it out. And here are my instructions. Don't take any plunder or any spoil from this whole city. It is devoted to the Lord. Nobody gets to take anything for themselves. Well, there was a man named Achan who heard and knew what God had said, and he stole some gold from the city of Jericho, and he hid it in his tent and then they come to this next battle, which was a simple little one that they should have easily won, and they lost. And, 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 and Joshua says, God, what's going on? And God says, well, I'm not going with you because there's been disobedience. There's sin in the camp. And they go through the whole process of prayerfully finding out where it came from because nobody's adding, no one's admitting it or confessing. And God showed that he knew, and the lot fell to Achan and his family. And what did God have the nation of Israel do to that man and his wife and his children? Put them all to death with stoning. By the way, you see God do the same thing at the beginning, not only of the nation of Israel, but also the beginning of the church age. The Bible talks about how the church began to grow. And there was a man named Barnabas in the end of chapter 4 of Acts who actually had a piece of property and he sold it and he gave the money to the church to be used. However, the leaders of the church felt needed to be done to take care of the needs of the body. And I'm sure he got some recognition because of that. And there's another couple named Ananias and Sapphira who decided... Hey, let's do the same thing, but let's keep some of the money and pretend like we gave it all. And what did God do to Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to the Holy Spirit? He had them struck down. And the Bible says a great fear came upon the church. God did something at the beginning part of the church to show I still take sin seriously. Yes, I'm a God who gives grace. Yes, I'm a God who has mercy. Yes, I'm a God who forgives. Yes, I'm a God who separates your sin as far as the east from the west. But it doesn't mean that I still am not a holy God. And folks, I just want you to understand, God is a merciful God or else most of us wouldn't be here. If we're honest, if every time you lied, God struck you dead, I wouldn't be preaching to many people and I wouldn't be preaching. But 
there are times when God knows that this is premeditated sin and he doesn't want it to happen, that he'll take you home early if you're a believer. There's sin that leads to death. Or if there's sin that he's been dealing with you about and you are his child, he's never going to say, well, I changed my mind. No, no, if he's made you a promise, he's going to keep it. He cannot lie. He's not a man or should change his mind. And if he sealed you with his spirit and you walk in continual disobedience, guess what? He's going to take you home early. You will lose reward in heaven, but you won't lose your salvation. By the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you can double check me later on. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 32, Paul's talking about the Lord's Supper and how that church wasn't even taking the Lord's Supper the way they were supposed to. And he said, because of this, some of you are sick and some have what? Some have died. There is and there are physical consequences in this life for sin. Now, we got to be careful. This is why you got to understand the whole and the balance of Scripture. Does that mean everybody that's sick is sinning? No. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. Does that mean that everybody that dies earlier than we expect? Oh, God took them home early. They must have been a sinner. I'm always worried about preaching this kind of a message, because if I die tonight of a heart attack, y'all going to go, huh, Jim was a, sick, was a sicko, and God had to get him off the earth. No, but listen, I also want you to take sin as seriously as God does. And so keep short accounts. Don't get to the point where you say, well, I don't sin. There's no such thing as sin. By the way, there, there's someone that used to come to this Bible study weekly who has not been here now in two years because I said there's still sin for believers. In his mind, believers don't sin. There's no such thing as sin. I said, what about the book of James? What about 1 John? He goes, well, I don't believe those books. But there are those who claim the name of Christ who think they don't sin anymore because I'm a Christian and there's no such thing as sin for Christians. Folks, there is. And so I couldn't jump forward in our study of James without getting deep a little bit when we deal with temptation and sin because there are so many lies out there. And we're living in a day and age in which the world is saying things that the Bible says is sin. The world and even those who claim the name of Christ are saying it's not sin. It's a lifestyle choice. God made me this way. Oh, folks, let me say this to you. We all are born with a temptation to sin in one way or another or many ways. As men, we are tempted to look at other women. It's something we have to wrestle with. Does that mean since God made me this way that I can say to my wife, it's just the way I was made? It's not sin. That doesn't work. In the same way, if you're tempted to be attracted to the same sex, the Bible says that is sin. Oh, God loves you, but you can't rewrite the Bible. In the church today, and I say church in quotes, there are those who claim the name of Christ who are now, there are churches that say it's okay. They're even putting rainbow flags out in front of their churches to say you're welcome here. Folks, homosexuals are welcome in any place that preaches the name of Jesus, but sin is still sin. And we have to keep this in mind. And I say this to you, brothers and sisters in Christ. I say this to you, fathers. I say this to you, young men. I say this to you, children, wherever you are on the walk. You need to understand that God is a God of grace. And He's a God of mercy. And He's a God of forgiveness. But He's still a holy God. And we need to know this today in our individual walks. And encourage each other in this battle that we all have against sin.
By the way, this is why Paul wrote what he wrote after the verses we saw last week about running the race for the crown. Go back to 1 Corinthians 9. I left off a few verses right after the passage about the running for the crown that I just didn't feel like we were to deal with at that time, and now I know why, because God said this is where it will fit easier to understand. Go to 1 Corinthians 9 and look at verses 24 through 27. Last week when we looked at the crown, which is life, we looked at this verse in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. It says, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Now, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul's not saying I'm worried about losing my salvation, but he says, I want that crown. I want the reward for the one who has run the race well. I don't want to be known as the one who started off really good, but stumbled at the finish line. That's why at the end of his life, he can say, I fought the fight, I fight, I finished the race. I know there is in store for me a reward, the crown of righteousness. But not only for me, but for all who have loved his appearing. But look closely at what he says. He says, run your race here in such a way that you take your spiritual holiness and your spiritual growth serious. The best way I can illustrate that to you is this, this way. Just like you practice saying no to your desires or your, you practice saying no to your desires for unhealthy food when you're trying to improve your physical health, so too we must practice saying no to our fleshly desires when trying to improve our spiritual health. Let me read it to you again. Just like you practicing no to your desires for unhealthy food when you're trying to improve your physical health, so too we must practice saying no to our fleshly desires when trying to improve our spiritual health. And i got to be honest with you, I thank God by His grace He's helped me lose all that weight because this would have been hard to preach without that. As one preacher said, my sin is always before me. But listen, when you try to physically get healthier, you say no to things that would be pleasurable for the reward of down the road, correct? You must practice the same things in your spiritual walk. Are there temptations to do things or to think things or to act in certain ways that are unhealthy for you spiritually? Yes, it hurts your fellowship with the Father. Remember how we read in 1 John 1? It says that He's, he's holy. And in Him is no darkness at all. And if anyone walks in the darkness and says we have fellowship with the Father, they're lying. And the truth's not in them. In the same way, we too must recognize the temptation. We must recognize that that's coming from within us as well. And it's there. And we must practice saying no. Saying no to the flesh and yes to the Spirit. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. I could spend the rest of tonight showing you scripture upon scripture upon scripture that kind of illustrates this point. It's all through the Bible, and you might have missed it, but I'm just going to give you a couple. 1 Timothy 4, look at verses 6 through 16. 
Paul's writing to Timothy and he says, if you, if you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the, for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Listen closely. We need to train ourselves to live godly lives. Physical training has value, but it's temporary. But spiritual training has eternal value. 2 Timothy. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. One of the big things that helped me as a dad become the kind of father I was supposed to be was to move away from teaching our kids the rules and getting them to understand how to walk in the Spirit, how to listen to the Spirit and have their senses and their consciences and their spirits and their hearts sensitive to God speaking to them. Because if God does take me home early, for whatever reasons He wants to, I have a responsibility to have taught them not what the rules are, but actually what it means to hear God and to walk with Him. 2 Timothy chapter 2, look at verses 19 through 22. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Did you catch that? There can be those of us who are in the house of faith. We are in the body of Christ. But because of our giving over to the practice of sin more than we ought, we become vessels that aren't usable for honorable use. But God says, I want to use you, but I can't use you as you are. Let me continue my process of conforming you into my, the image of my son. And so, folks, whatever that looks like, whatever God's dealing with you and I about, again, I'm not asking you to all of a sudden become perfect tonight. But is there something he's talking to you about? Give it to him. And ask for his grace to stop taking it when it's tempted and put before you. Practice this. Practice this. I touched on the fact that I lost all that weight. Trust me, I had tried to lose weight for years. As I've told people for years, I've lost thousands of pounds. But when I was doing it, I would gain it back and even more. Until one morning, about four in the morning, God woke me up and he said two words to me. He said, it's time. And I knew exactly what he meant. Because there has been something that he had been talking to me about. Something that he'd been using my wife to speak to me about. And when he said, it's time, I knew that he was saying this. And when I surrendered to him, supernaturally, the weight came off. 
because it was him and not me. So when I say train, when I say pursue, you need to know how to do this with him by his grace. Remember, the trials have come to drive us where? Closer to him. So if you come out of this lesson and say, Lord, I'm going to live for you, you've totally missed it. You can't. He who begun the good work in you will finish it. He's the one who starts it. He's the author and the perfecter. And in your struggle, when his spirit convicts you, do not say, I will do better. No, say, God, by your grace, we will get there because I'm going to lean on you and I'm going to do what you say. But the victory is going to be yours. The victory is going to be yours. I've just touched on this, but I'm going to say it here. We cannot fight this fight alone. We will lose if we do. Go to Galatians 5.16. I quoted it earlier, but I want you to see it. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. By the way, did I read it right? No, what did I leave off? Walk by the Spirit. Paul doesn't say, you have the power within you. No, no. I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. Our focus should not be saying no to the, the flesh. Our focus should be saying yes to the Spirit. Do you understand? It's saying yes to the Spirit. And by the way, if you say yes to the Spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. You'll say no to the flesh. Ephesians chapter 6. You're in Galatians. Turn over one book. Ephesians 6. Passages we've all known for years but might need to relook at. Look at verses 10 through 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore... Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith in, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Again, we could spend a whole night or 17 weeks just on those verses. But again, the battle is whose? It's the Lord's battle. The battle belongs to the Lord. But He's designed to put us in this battle so that we'd run to Him. James chapter 4. Go to James chapter 4. I promise we'll get to James chapter 4 sometime, but it may be a while. But in James chapter 4, look at verses 4 through 10. Some of you say, Jim, we even get to James tonight. Well, we will. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit? That he is made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Again, talking to believers. Folks, believers fall into sin. And sometimes we stumble quite a bit. Oh, that's why the Bible says in Galatians 6.1, if you see your brother caught in a trespass, not doing it once in a while, but if you see your brother or your sister that's caught in a trespass, go help them. How do you help them? Do you berate them? Do you chast? No, you go and you say, you need to turn to the Lord. You need to acknowledge this is sin and you need to turn to the Lord. You need his help. And I'll pray for you, and, but I can't do this for you. You need to rely on him. But folks, don't be running around pointing, oh, you just did that. You, should, you call yourself a Christian. No, no, no. I'm not talking stumble. We all stumble. There's a difference between stumbling in sin and practicing sin. James chapter 1. Look at verses 17 and 18. All of a sudden now, you're going to see how these verses tie to what we just looked at. James chapter 1, 17 and 18. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Now this actually is tied together. When James wrote this letter, he didn't say, okay, I've just finished verse 16, I'll stop, take a break here, and then I'll start over in verse 17. There were no verses. We broke it down to help us study it years later, but this was all continual thought. One of the main ways to find help in our time of trouble is to remember that God is good and He's for us, not against us. I'm going to say that to you again. One of the ways that you will find help in your time of trouble is to know in your heart that God is good and that He's for you and not against you. Folks, for years, whenever I would fall into sin as a young man, I would be so convicted by the Holy Spirit, but then Satan would come at that same time and he would heap on. And he would say, God's really disappointed with you. God's not going to use you in ministry. And he would do all these things to beat me down. And for a while, I used to believe the lies. I used to believe the lies. I remember one time I gave in in my mind to lust. And I was a single person at the time living in an apartment behind the ABC liquor off of Babcock Road in Palm Bay, Florida. I was in a nice neighborhood. And uh, we, me and my brother had our first apartment. And I remember laying down on the floor in that apartment, begging God to take me back because I was sure he had left me. And I remembered as I laid there on the floor weeping, that there was a song that I had heard, and God brought this to my mind. It was called Take Me Back by a, a musician. Some of you remember the group Petra. Remember Petra? Greg X. Voles used to be the lead singer for Petra. And he did a single album. And on that single album, he had a song called Take Me Back. And as I was laying on the floor saying, God, take me back. That song came to my mind. And I got up and I put it in the cassette player and I played it. And the words of the song are along this line. I'm sorry. 
I've lost so much. Will you take me back? Will you take me back? And then at the very end of the song, it says this, Through my tears, my eyes were opened, and I just had to laugh when I realized you never, ever let me go. Once I understood the truth that I had not lost my salvation, I had lost fellowship with him, and he was grieved that I had lost fellowship with him. He wasn't mad. If when I was still a sinner, if when I was his enemy, he sent his son to die for me, how much more, now that I'm his child, will I be spared from his wrath? I finally started to believe the truth of the Bible when I understood that God is good and every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In other words, he doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind. He keeps his word and who he is is who he is. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Would you not agree that God so loves the world that he sent his only son to die for the whole world? Would you not agree? Would you not agree that the Bible actually says that he not only died for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world, as we read earlier in 1 John 2? Yes. Then why do we fall prey when we sin as believers to think that all of a sudden God doesn't love us as much when he loved us when we were his enemy? And now we can receive the full extent of his love. See, that's the difference between us and the rest of the world that doesn't know God. He loves them just as much as he loves us. He doesn't love us more. But we can experience the full extent of his love because we've been reconciled. Because of the fact that the world is not reconciled to him because they've not received his love and his forgiveness, they can't experience the full love that, that is theirs and available to them through faith. Go to Romans chapter 8. I want you to understand these biblical truths. Jim, we already studied Romans. Yeah, but we need to be reminded of I hope you never stop studying Romans. We're actually working on our next book. Did you know the Revelation book has been the book that we just published a couple years ago? The latest one we're working on right now, Elise and I, is the book of Romans. We really feel like God's told us to put the book of Romans into a written form as the handbook for the Christian life. It's going to take a little while to take all of my ramblings and put it into something that's readable, but that's Elise's job. That's why we're paying her the big bucks. In Romans chapter 8, look at verses 1 through 17. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now jump down to verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. 
So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if you're children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Did you catch all that? That's pretty much what we've been talking about. For those of us who are in Christ, there's no condemnation. God's already taken care of that law of sin and death that was against us. He took care of it by living the sinless life. He took our death on, in, in his own place, in, in our place, and on his own body. And listen, he rose from the dead. He's given us eternal life. He's erased our sin, put his spirit within us, and he's left us in these mortal bodies who are still under the curse so that we would rely on him. Jesus was teaching his disciples in John chapter 14 that the spirit's been with them, but he's going to be in them. And then in chapter 15, he says this. I'm the vine, my father's the gardener, and you're the branches. Every branch in me that abides will produce fruit. In other words, he said, look, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. The Holy Spirit's going to come to indwell you, and I'm going to be in you. I'm not going to leave you by your, on your own. I'm going to come. But you need to know how to abide. You need to know how to walk in the Spirit. And folks, how we do that is daily, daily, throughout the day, meditating on His Word. Allowing it to permeate every part of our being. Not just doing a little Bible reading in the morning and saying, I did my Bible study and now go on and live in, uh, on our own. No, He wants the Word to be in our hearts and to be thinking about it. Having Him bring it to mind. He brings the Scripture to mind. As you just read it and study it and treasure it. He will bring it to your mind and He'll use it to shape you and to mold you. And when He, as a loving Father, corrects or convicts, say, you're right. And the only reason you pointed that out is because you love me. And you want what's best for me. Years ago, I heard this one preacher use this illustration, and I love this illustration. He said, let's just imagine you're wearing a backpack, and the backpack represents sin. And if you know on a backpack, there's that little piece of cloth that's like a loop where you can take the backpack and hook it on a hook if you want to. He said, let's just imagine you're wearing the backpack that represents sin, and someone comes and takes that loop, and they pull down on the backpack. That's like the enemy coming and saying, you're no good, you're a loser, you're a failure, God doesn't love you. He said, but let's imagine that you're wearing that backpack that represents sin, and someone else comes and takes their finger through that little loop, and they try to take it off. You don't need this. This isn't good for you. I have better for you than this. This won't help you. You're going to feel pressure either way, but one type of pressure makes you feel worthless, shamed condemned. The other lovingly says, this is wrong, but I don't want this for you. Do you understand the difference? And you need to learn how to recognize the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The one who loves you and will tell you only the truth and the one who hates you and will is the father of lies. That's why James says in James chapter 1 verse 16, don't be deceived, my dear brothers. 
every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. I could take the time, we don't have it tonight, to read to you Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 39, where he talks about nothing will separate us from the love of God. If he who didn't spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also with Christ Jesus give us everything that we need? Folks, we need to live in a knowledge of the truth. Oh, by the way, when you live in the knowledge of the truth, it actually helps you have victory over the temptation. What does the Bible say? You'll know the truth and the truth will what? It'll set you free. Instead of fighting the sin problem, learn how to walk with Jesus. Oh, the temptation will still be there. But when you walk with Jesus, all you do is submit yourself to him and he's right there. By the way, didn't the Bible tell us that when Eve was being tempted, who was standing right there with her? Adam. By the way, was he any help? No, he wasn't any help. But they also had God the Father who also walked in that garden. But instead of calling out to him to say, hey, could you come talk to him? They tried to deal with him themselves. Oh, and as we read in Ephesians 6, that's a battle against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And let me tell you, I don't care how superman you think you are, or superwoman you think you are, you are not winning that one. But the one who already has defeated him is all you need, and he's with you, but you need to know this. We're going to close tonight by going to Psalm 34. I'm going to read to you the whole chapter, and I hope that it will cause some of you to say, I want to go spend a little more time in that chapter. Psalm 34, verses 1 through 22, is how we're going to wrap up tonight. David says this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. And he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Oh, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Oh, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Now many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Isn't that a cool chapter full of awesome promises? But there's something in here that in the 
three minutes we have left, I want you to notice. Some of you might have looked at verse 19 and says, Many of the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. He keeps all his bones and not one of them will be broken. Jim, I've had my bones broken. Actually, if you ask me, I've actually had my nose broken four times. One time I was playing basketball in college back in 1986, and a man that was six foot six, 260 pounds, came down with a rebound and did this to clear out. And he moved my nose from where it is now to where he put it over here. It stopped practice. They rushed me to the hospital and had to rebuild my face. I actually had to spend months in a face cast. What? what, what, what I, I must not have been righteous. No, 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 no. I want you to see something in Scripture here. Notice the tenses. Look at, we'll start in verse uh, 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are toward who? There. See how it's plural. The face of the Lord is against those, plural, who do evil. To cut off the memory of them, plural, from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them, plural, out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Now many of the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him. Notice how it's singular. Out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. And then it goes back to the plural. Those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Those he, Lord redeems the life of his servants, plural. None of those, plural, who take refuge in him will be condemned. Interestingly enough, in the midst of these promises for us, the plural, he made a singular prophecy, which now we know later on was clearly talking about an individual that was Jesus. None of his bones were broken. But you have to know how to look at the scriptures and look at the context and look at the tenses who is this promise for? And there are a lot of promises for us, the thems, the we's. There are a lot of them for us that we don't know. And so I want to encourage you, go get the word in your heart more and you will have much more victory in temptation when you believe that the Lord is good. And you want proof? He saved you. He gave his only son for you. What else do you need? Well, I know he sent Jesus for me, but if he'll just do this, oh, be careful. Don't ever belittle what God has already done and worship him for that and watch him keep all his promises. I love you. Lord willing, we'll see you in two weeks. I've already written that study. Can't wait to preach it to you. We'll see you then.